Truth Jihad Radio isn't giving up. Don't you give up either. Go to truthjihad.com and subscribe by way of the Substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, a place where I talk to all the most interesting people I can find who have uncommon insights into what's really going on in the world. Insights that are usually rejected or blocked or distorted or pushed back against in the corporate-controlled mainstream. Um, Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com here, uh, talking with Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould, uh, authors of The Valediction, Three Nights of Desmond. Now, that's an interesting title that most people will never be able to guess what the book is about based on just the title. It's actually a memoir involving Paul and Elizabeth's work in Afghanistan in the 1980s during the war. That was the the earlier Afghan war. The uh, Mujahideen versus Soviets is the way we've been taught to think about it. But their book gets into uh, a lot of uh, deeper stuff that my audience will appreciate about who are some of these nefarious forces setting up things like the Afghan war and so many other things going on in our world today. So, hey, uh, welcome, Paul and Elizabeth. Good to have you back. Well, it's great great to be with you, Kevin. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book, and I, I think that my audience would enjoy it, too, uh, because it's got kind of the, the two things that we talk about here, which would be geopolitics interpreted somewhat esoterically. That is, noted, uh-huh. noting that things like top two examples, the JFK assassination and 9-11, are not what the mainstream tells us. And so you, you have a very interesting uh, kind of insight into that through, by way of uh, your experiences in Afghanistan. So I'm not even sure where to start because this book uh, covers so much ground. Maybe we could sort of briefly just summarize uh, the kind of setup, as in how you got interested in Afghanistan, how you went there, and so on. Well, you know, it, there were a number of incidents that occurred back in the 1970s, and uh, I had been in the, the musical hair in 1970. I was a freshman at BU, and there were a lot of uh, anti-war protests, and of course, hair was the, was the big uh, global anti-war protest of the era. You know, there were shows in a number of different cities, and I just happened to audition. I was a freshman at BU. I happened to audition, and, and they gave me the lead. So it, it kind of introduced me at that particular moment in my life to to the broader international scene that was going on, and, and a lot of the people that were behind the show as well. You know, we had all kinds of celebrities there. We had all kinds of support. And so that really just was kind of like an interesting, it was like for a Harvard guy, it would like being being belonged to the Hasty Pudding Club or something like that, you know. So, I, but I got it at a very high level, and so I went on from there, finished school, and then I decided that my original effort was to get into journalism. And so I wound up getting uh, working in a couple of political campaigns of people who got elected and became powerful Congress people. And I thought this is my opportunity to get into, you know, into not just politics but into the media. And so. I wound up getting a TV show in Boston for three years, and that gave me another opportunity to do something. Ironically, uh, it was on the Christian Broadcasting Network affiliate. I was doing a public affairs program. I, I love this. I you, you were the devil's advocate on, on the was it Pat Robertson's uh, station? Yes, exa- exactly. I was the devil's advocate. I get to sit there and bring on Barney Frank and Ed Markey and all these people who were pushing very liberal causes, and John Kenneth Galbraith even. 
uh, and uh, pushing. I, I had to pick him up in my own car and drive him back and forth a couple of times from the station. That's right. The, be, the best show long... in Boston on Pat Robertson's network. Who, who would guess it? <laughs> <laughs> so we had a we had a very interesting relationship there for a couple of days, and uh, so going back and forth to that, and then the station was airing this this documentary that had been produced by the by this thing called the Security Council, American Security Council, which turned out to be this extremely right wing defense-supported, Defense Department-supported, and defense contractor-supported organization that basically pushed a right-wing agenda. And uh, it was coming on strong at that point. And the the station was airing it two or three times a day. And so I went on and I said, you know, we got to do something in opposition to that. we got to balance it out because we had the equal time provision. The, the, the fairness doctrine. And some people probably yes, remember right, that. Exactly, yeah. Back, when, back right. when we thought it was important to be fair right. about these things. So, Liz? Anyway, I just wanted to add a little bit of background. But what was going on politically at that point was the end of the Vietnam War. 1975 was a huge catastrophe for the bureaucracy. And there are an awful lot of people like John Galbraith and Senator Kennedy and many other uh, would I guess would be considered the more progressives um, within the bureaucracy who were really pushing for um, better relations with the Soviet Union. They wanted to push detente. They wanted to push the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which had been um, negotiated already through two presidents, but now Jimmy Carter had his opportunity. Well, one of the things that Jimmy Carter did, which actually should have been a red flag for people to say what is really going on here, um, he gets elected on basically a peace platform. The end of the Vietnam War had left the economy in shambles. So people really needed um, to, you know, the, this country needed to reinvest basically in the civilian economy. And, and this was being pushed also because the Soviets actually were desperate to get off of the, um, this kind of spending. They really couldn't afford it either. So there were a lot of motivation, a lot of contact. And one of the things that uh, Jimmy Carter did was he brought in Zbigniew Brzezinski the best-known Russophobe that anyone ever heard of. And it really um, set off absolutely slight ripples. I mean, everybody knew who he was, but you, you couldn't appreciate the impact until the, Soviet, the Soviets crossed the border into Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, o- overnight, um, and as Paul mentioned, we were working on the documentary about the SALT Treaty because of the Fairness Doctrine. So we put this program, it was coming out, and the Soviets crossed the border. And the entire concept of negotiation of any kind of, of, of relationship with the Soviets vanished. And it wasn't just the right wing that was touting this. Suddenly, the supposed progressives also suddenly lost all their interest in really promoting this direction. And that was really what caught our attention. It seemed as if the script had been written. Um, Literally, within a day, Jimmy Carter described uh, the event as the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War. But at the same time, he was claiming that um, they had no idea the Soviets were going to do this. So how how could they know uh, what had happened in one day? basically, and then call it this, obviously, this this very, um, you know, amazing catastrophe. Yeah, it was clearly an exaggerated event, and it looked like that to us, and we were very shocked at how this whole thing, uh, this 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 train for, you know, lowering the 
the uh, aggressiveness of the of the Cold War could somehow have been derailed just overnight by this thing. And where did this Afghanistan thing come from? Uh, I mean, that was a big issue, and I think that you know we made that pretty clear in the book. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember. Re- I remember those days, and, and it it clearly was a setup. And I remember you know being a teenager reading about the Trilateral Commission, uh, basically handpicking Carter to be president and appointing Brzezinski as his foreign policy handler. And from you know, obviously the fix was exactly, there. Yeah. exactly. There were Trilateral Commission people all over the right. all over the Carter administration, but they weren't as as Russophobic and uh, overtly. And, Overtly and xenophobic as, right. as Brzezinski, he certainly had an agenda, mm-hmm. and and he really he created a, a stovepipe operation inside of the Carter administration, so much so, and was so anti-Soviet that when uh, Reagan got elected in 1980, uh, William Casey, the CIA director, wanted to bring him in. He wanted to keep him as the national security advisor to Reagan. And uh, he just checked around with some of his conservative Republicans, and they said, no way are we going to let Brzezinski in. He's too much of a Democrat. But but anyway, he did want to do that because he had been so effective. And that's what Casey just picked up, what Brzezinski had, had set up and then carried it forward. And uh, right. so that, that's what motivated us to write this. And we wanted to write it as a... You know, it, as we went through it, okay, so to, to give people, I mean, so many people feel distanced from this stuff, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of details and facts about this thing in places you never heard of and people's names you can't pronounce. And, you know, we, you know it's hard for us sometimes to remember all the details of this thing. So we wanted to put it in a way that people would be able to enjoy it and make it, you know, easy to read and, uh, and really get something out of it so that we can start, you know, motivating people to, 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 to get off first base and to get home with the, uh, you know, with a real story. Well, I think for us, the most important thing is in realizing that this particular event, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as framed by Brzezinski, was able to literally inaugurate a, a total takeover of the bureaucracy by the neocon agenda. So this is why it's, un, it's very important to go back to that point. The neocons had always been an influence. They certainly were, were very well known, but they never got the sort of front row seat operation, and that's what Brzezinski was able to do for them. And basically, they've never, they've never lost it. They've held on to it ever since. And part of the reason they've been able to hold on to it is because as they frame the narrative for what happened in Afghanistan, the fundamental narrative was summarized in the film Charlie Wilson's War. And that is what most Americans think basically was the U.S. role in the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And that is the reason that, you know, going on today to what's happened and people looking at the, the obvious, you know, this, this, this latest um, situation, you know, witnessing the U.S. departure from Afghanistan, which looked an awful lot like their exit from Saigon, um, as being, you know, unimaginable what just happened. So these are the kinds of things that as you begin to understand the way this process works, the, the purpose of basically controlling Afghanistan 
was never about bringing women's rights to Afghanistan, as was projected by George Bush. Quite, quite okay, the opposite, actually. In 2001, right? <laughs> yeah. And what we're dealing with today, again, what is really going on? So this is why we're trying to give people this sort of this the setup and the and the and the and the players that actually were behind the scenes that nobody knows about. I think that's what we really you know feel is important for people to see. And the narrative creation ultimately is the most important of all. And that's what our experience was with CBS News, with ABC News, with PBS. The actual experience of witnessing the the framing of the narrative that became. A completely, uh, totally, the the American narrative once the film, and that's the reason it's so important. Because when they choose a film, that's where they end up, uh, kind of sealing the deal of control of the narrative. Yeah, and you guys were going off script, and it's this book is among the many uh, wonderful things about it is the description of you going up against these controllers of the narrative, people like uh, like Dan Rather. Uh, who was yep. part of controlling the narrative about the JFK assassination as well, and then became Gunga Dan in Afghanistan. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we see patterns. Exactly. Your book uh, echoes with, with the, the one overriding pattern that I, uh, I see here is the way that the war party always manages to orchestrate a dubious provocation to drag us into a misguided war. We see this over and over and over right. with the Zimmerman telegram in the Lusitania for World War One. Before yeah, that, the yeah. Spanish-American War, the, the right. blowing up of the Maine, uh, not by the Spanish. With, with uh, Pearl Harbor, there's a very good analogy between Afghanistan and Pearl Harbor, where we pretend mm-hmm. to be surprised by an attack <laughs> by the evil enemy. And and we beat the propaganda drums, but actually the whole thing was orchestrated, not just anticipated. You know, it wasn't just that Roosevelt knew Pearl Harbor was coming or that uh, Brzezinski knew that the Soviets were going to invade. It was even worse. We actually orchestrated those two enemy attacks. Uh, exactly. the, the war party exactly. did. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What, exactly. You see this exactly. over and over. And then 9-11, let's not even get started with that as a uh, fully anticipated provocation that we actually orchestrated. So it, it seems like over and right. over and over the American war party does this. They, they orchestrate a war provocation and drag the country kicking and streaming into a war that we probably never should have entered in the first place. That's exactly the idea. And that's why we, we felt that Afghanistan is a window into how, how that process works. There was one particular flaw in the ointment, however, in their ointment, and that was the Dubs assassination. And that is something that they have been that Adolf Dubs was the American ambassador who went in there in 1978, spring of 1978, with the, with the objective, mind you, of keeping the Soviets from invading and drawing the Afghan government closer towards the United States, but had to do it in such a subtle way that he had to balance both ends, both ends of the equation. And he was trying to do that, but he was being opposed by Brzezinski in Washington all the way down the line. And what happened was is that he winds up getting kidnapped at one point in 1979, shortly after the fall of the Shah in Iran, and he winds up getting taken to room 117 at the Kabul Hotel, and they were told, the police were told, the Soviets were told, and the Soviets even admitted that they were not going to storm the room that was going to be, they were going to negotiate with the kidnappers. And all of a sudden, the police are storming the room, the Kabul Police Department. Now, this is where, this is the kind of story that you don't get in the news. These are the things they don't tell you about. 
and uh, they wind up uh, storming the room, and uh, the the, the uh, police chief of the Kabul police is a, is a known thug. He's known to be uh, a, a dangerous criminal, and he's known to, he and his boss are known to uh, basically take a machine gun and aim it at somebody they were questioning in order to threaten them to get a confession out of them, okay? He's known that he's known by the U.S. Embassy that way. He's even known by the Russians that, that way. And they wind up uh, storming the room. He holds the rescue party off after after the gunfight is over, supposedly over. The American embassy uh, uh, person hears this four gunshots from inside the room, and then he opens the door and waves everybody in. And the ambassador is sitting in his chair, and half of his body is soaked. He's got as if he had been lying on the floor. And the Afghan police chief pulls him up off the floor, puts him in the chair, and it would have looked as if, I mean, everyone seems to indicate that, every, certain people seem to indicate that it had to be the police chief, the Afghan police chief that did this. But immediately that assassination turned into an anti-Soviet drama in Washington. All the news, the New York Times and Washington Post all came out and immediately said the Soviets had done this. It's a fait accompli. There's no way that Afghanistan can ever be back in, in, in the favor of the West, and the Russians are going to be held responsible for the death of the American ambassadors. So, as you said, it was a, it was a perfect setup, and it was real, it, very interesting in the sense that Adolf Dobbs was actually becoming a roadblock to what Brzezinski wanted. Now, we're not suggesting that, that Brzezinski put out any orders to do this, but we are suggesting that there were other people uh, very powerful people that were not directly connected to the United States government, but were doing working freelance for the United States government out of Saudi Arabia and places like that, and out of the Middle East, and working through the Bank of Commerce and Credit International uh, in in Pakistan that were that were supplying. Uh, the, a private army, privatized hit force to go and do these various things. Mm -hmm. And the more you look into it, the curiouser it becomes. It becomes curiouser and curiouser. Yeah, your, your analysis uh, looks spot on to me, and, and it's totally the kind of methods we would expect from these people. Your, your analysis of that assassination of Ambassador Dubbs uh, actually reminds me a little bit of David Martin's book on uh, the assassination of Thomas Merton, in, uh, uh -huh. in Thailand, and, and in both cases, you, it was probably carried out by CIA-linked, uh, the, the drug-dealing wing of the CIA's uh, friends right. who, pull, who right. are very good at these things. Uh, and in bo both credible, cases... Credible it, yeah, deniability right. yeah, you know, the, right. is what they refer to it as. You get somebody else to do it who's, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the narco business was, was, you know, was going great guns in, in Vietnam. And, and the CIA was known to be connected to it. They had their own airline flying the, the drugs in and the, the drugs out, rather, and the guns in. I mean, that, that, that one, of the, oh, <clears throat> one of the CIA people told us, he said that planes were never empty. Right. So they were always full. And that, but after the Vietnam War, after the United States left Southeast Asia, it was already in the works as of 72, 1973, that, the, that, that it was clear that the United States was not going to be able to stay in Southeast Asia. So the drug business was moving from Southeast Asia to South Central Asia in that border region between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And, and they were encouraging it. And that we were, you know, there's a, there's a quote from uh, uh, Fazal Haq, who was a, a Pakistani general who apparently took credit 
for provoking Brzezinski to lure the Soviets into Afghanistan by claiming you, you, you screwed up in, in Korea, you screwed up in Vietnam, you've got an opportunity here, now we want you to use it. Now, he was responsible for setting up in the, within the Pakistani military the special cell, which was there to run drugs. And that was all done with the power of, the, of Pakistan and the Pakistani government and the authority of the Pakistani government and then full knowledge and support, basically, of the CIA. I mean, the CIA w- weren't the ones running the drugs, but the CIA certainly was aware of it. And, but it, they, as far as they were concerned, uh, from what we asked, uh, they just simply said, well, it wasn't their concern. They weren't, there to, to, they weren't there to stop the drug trade. They were there to basically give the Soviets their own Vietnam. Well, what they did actually was they, they really empowered all the Mujahideen, and some of them became billionaires and very powerful individuals. So the, these were all effectively, you know, I think the idea of what they call, you know, uh, Islamic fundamentalists, they make it sound as if somehow if you're a drug dealer, what's more important is that you're an Islamic fundamentalist and you like to chop people's heads off. Well, if I'm talking about uh, the, the, the the mafia, okay, I don't care whether it's a, a Catholic mafia or, you know, whatever it is. The point is they're criminals, and they should be viewed as criminals. And this is why a lot of times, uh, the especially the mainstream media, tends to conf- help confuse people about things like that. So the drug running was, a, was one of the ways that this whole uh, Mujahideen uh, effort was being financed. And the drugs would end up in the United States, and the uh, rise in, obviously, in addiction was phenomenal during that time period, to the point where the U.S. government requested uh, that the Mujahideen use their mystical communication network to please stop the flow of drugs to the United States. It was so bad. So these are part of the... Um, complexities that just are elude, you know, obviously the, the mainstream storytelling and certainly uh, big time in Charlie Wilson's war. So that's what we wanted to convey. And I'm thank you for, for, uh, for uh, congratulating us on that, because it, that was a concern. We were, you know, we just didn't want to take an, uh, so many facts that we could come across and, you know, stack them up and turn it into another brick wall of facts that was, you know, people couldn't, couldn't get through. We wanted to put it in a way, in a manner in which people would understand as we went through some of these things. I mean, the event that we, we had with uh, Al Lowenstein is, an, is a good example. Yeah, yeah. T- tell us that. more about that, because I, I had barely remembered hearing about Lowenstein, and I, I looked him up a little bit after encountering him in your, in your book. And, and you mentioned that when you met Lowenstein, uh, he, he told you that since you're Fitzgerald, uh, you know, you're Fitzgerald, you're in the family, which is, of course, the uh, JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy family. Uh, that we can tell you this, we know who did it, that is killed the Kennedys, and uh, people are willing to talk, but we need the presidency to protect them. Now, that's a very interesting right. statement from somebody who was pretty close to the Kennedy family. Yeah, I mean, he had done a lot of investigations. I think he ran Bobby Kennedy's campaign in uh, in 1968, and uh, he had done a lot of investigation, and that's when he said, you know, we went up to this event for Ted Kennedy had challenged Carter for the nomination uh, in, in uh, 1980, 1980, and uh, he said, um, 
he said, you know, when he found out that, you know, that I was a Fitzgerald and my grandfather and JFK's grandfather were cousins. Okay. That's as close as it gets. But uh, he says, uh, well, since he very hushed tones, he says, well, since you're, you know, since, since your family, he says, I'm going to let you know. He says, we're going to, he says, we're going to get these SOBs. He said that killed Jack and Bobby. He said, I've got the people all lined up and ready to talk about it. He said, but he said they need, as you, as you said, they need, they need Ted as the president in order to protect them. And he goes, he goes down to New York and two weeks later we pick up the newspaper and we discover that he's been, you know, he was shot by someone who came into his he office. Murdered. <laughs> he was murdered. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, fired, I don't know how many bullets they fired, but they made sure he was dead. And you know, uh, you know, having that experience who, could make anybody a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, we've been hearing about these things. We never, I never well, crossed the line personally about JFK, but the fact is, is that. But you know, actually, truthfully, what was even more shocking was discovering that he was working with the CIA and the National Student Association, and that directly connected to Hafizul Amin, who is the man that had taken over. Um, in Afghanistan, the 78, basically, you know, the, the 78 revolution, where he became, he, he, he became the head of the country and was basically leading, creating a lot of the problems that ended up resulting. He, he was creating the, the situation that the Soviets went into. Right. So, so Lowenstein right. was basically a CIA insider in a certain, you know, or had, had contact with that world, which is probably why he would have known the people who were willing to talk. Right, but that's why the National Student Association was exactly. so important because they used that. Right. The CIA used that, right. and Al Lones, he'd helped create it. And, and, and the CIA used that organization to basically um, court various individuals from countries around the world that they would then follow through with relationships so they could be, obviously become more right. of an he asset was, you know, he to was, the United States. He was very, very well aware of the, of the milieu in which this whole thing kind of you know, happens. And most, most people don't. I mean, most people just don't think that way. You know, most people think that you know, we live in a democracy and we elect our officials and that they're doing the best they can in order to, in, under difficult circumstances, to do things. And as you said, there's a whole, there's a whole separate agenda. I mean, when we got involved with Afghanistan um, again back in 2001, after the after the 9/11 events, um, one of one of the advisors, an Afghan person who was working with the U.S. government, told us. He said, "We're going to put out a white paper on the subject." He said, "But just remember, for every white paper we put out, there's a black paper." <laughs> so you really, you really do have this kind of duality going on, this kind of Manichaean thing, that what the public's being told is what they, you know, put in the white paper, and what's really going on is in the black paper, and so that's what we're trying to do with, with our book. Yeah, but uh, look, the even even inside the system, it's set up to be hierarchical so that there's only a need-to-know basis. So it isn't just outside. In fact, we actually had one of the most amazing experiences that we had was when we met um, Chuck Hogan, who was the chief of the directorate of operations for, um, for the regions, uh, Near East and South Asia, okay, in 79 to 84. Okay, this is a guy that was inside at a high level, all right, and he was completely uh, insisting when we met him in 2009, when our first book, Invisible History, came out. Um, he uh, got right up to the podium after we did our, you know, our, our presentation and said, basically, I agree with everything that you've said, but I don't agree that Brzezinski lured the Soviets into Afghanistan, and I don't believe that that 1998. Um, interview he gave was accurately translated. So that was that. Okay, you have your opinion. Well, 
um, in 2015, we decided to call him up and do an interview with him. We wanted to get, you know, sort of the sort of the next stage of, of Chuck Hogan's view of the world. And we had found a lot of more information right. about the events that has happened. Right. So we end up um, setting up, we, do, we get the interview going, and right away, after you know, a little introduction, uh, Chuck says, by the way, I want to tell you something. I ended up meeting Brzezinski at a function recently, and I had the opportunity to meet him for the first time. And I went up to him and I said, I love what you're doing. And he said, but I want you to know, I never believed that stuff about you and that interview and this whole thing about you luring the Soviets in. And he said this to us on camera. He said, oh, it's true. You didn't know what we were doing in the White House. We had a completely separate operation. So this is this is a guy at a high level, and you know there are a lot of people I, I think who would say, well, he Kogan was probably just uh, you know just hiding the fact that he knew. And we actually came to believe that Brzezinski was so good at hiding his operation that in fact Kogan didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there, there are a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of dual track activities. In fact, one of the interesting aspects of your book is the way we can sort of uh, even st- step back a little bit from the book itself and try to think about the motivations of these different uh, players that are involved in in the situation. There's, of course, the uh, Cold War framework: the Americans who want to win the Cold War against evil communism, godless communism, or, you know, or Russia as a geostrategic entity or whatever. Then we have the Pakistanis who want geostrategic depth. They, they need Afghanistan to be part of their thing. And, uh, Islam is, of course, the good, the way to get over tribal issues in parts of the world where that, where Islam is the dominant religion. So naturally they're going to sort of favor, uh, Islamism of one kind or another. Uh, and it's existential for Pakistan because India has never accepted Pakistan's independence. India went nuclear. You know, Pakistan is in a very tough position and so on and so forth. But we get all the way up to, you know, the, the religious conflicts and the tribal conflicts that you describe. Uh, go way, way back, you say, the tribal conflicts include the tribal conflict around the British invasion of Ireland a thousand years ago, which is still relevant Mm -hmm. in the Kennedy assassination with the wasps being the Tudors and the uh, Kennedy representing (laughs) the Fitzgeralds. And, uh, and then we have the religious conflicts. Uh, there's, of course, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sure sounds like what you're describing is that overall the war party, the neocons, whatever you want to call them, who kind of dominate the United States and have for a long time, who are tutors to a certain extent, those people uh, are essentially at, at the highest level representing a Freemasonry, which is a Zionist enterprise, uh, which it's an anti-Catholic Zionist enterprise that yearns to put the Jewish Messiah uh, on the throne in occupied Jerusalem to rule the world. Uh, Is that that an unfair description? (laughs) Go ahead. Yes, I'd I'd say that's pretty pretty good. I mean, you you might think of it as well as the Black Knights versus the White Knights. The Black Knights being the Fitzgeralds. I mean, this is part of the story that we'll be telling in the second part of the book. I mean, we took a trip to Ireland and uh, we discovered, we got a chance to talk to, there's a knighthood, a, a, uh, uh, a, a formal knighthood in the Fitzgerald family. 
There's the Black Knight, the White Knight, and the Green Knight. And uh, we went to meet this the Knight of Glynn, and it's a hereditary knighthood. And uh, and he told us that you know about the background and the family and about what happened to the family and how it, the, our branch of the family, the Desmond branch of the family, which is the the, the part that Kennedy, uh, the, the Jack Kennedy, is involved in, the Kennedys are involved in, uh, is basically um, uh, they were damned by the Elizabethans. I mean, I found this document from the when was it, 16th century. Uh, it was written in 1584, 1585, and it was basically a complete damnation of the Fitzgerald family for their resistance to Queen Elizabeth uh, on the throne. And it was, it was like, how dare they? They are offending God by challenging the, uh, the heir to the, the throne of, of, of Britain. You can imagine what JFK did to these people when he got elected president. It's pretty clear. He must have driven them <laughs> mad. When you realize the yeah. deep background of, and as you mentioned, this is all the Masonic ritual stuff. This is all, all the stuff that uh, you know that uh, you don't get to hear about on the evening news. Well, there is another thing though that has to be factored in. Okay, it, it's very important. I think, is that the British Emperor in the 19th century, when they were really moving into that region and obviously uh, the whole issue of Afghanistan um, and, and the creation of Pakistan in 1947, the fact was that they were also creating basically a, a very politicized Islam. And the pan-Islamic movement is really has to be viewed as part of what you just described. It's not separate from the Masonic um, view. Okay, it's part of it because the influence and the real creator of it was the British Empire. So in Pakistan, what you really have is an Islamic country that is the equal to Israel as a religious state, except it's Muslim. But they're both on the same side, and that's important to realize. And in, in terms of the America's role with, um, for instance, once the British left the region, America picked up where the British left off. They made Pakistan their partner. And Pakistani intelligence, just like the CIA, was created by British intelligence. So you've got some roots there that you simply can't you know, ignore or, or view in terms of their religious differences. They're really pan-Islamist or, or globalist, whatever word you want to apply. They're, and they're coming at it uh, in, in kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in a communion together um, that's actually, I think, bigger than their, their religious differences. Um, you do have real differences, but they come together regardless so, when it comes to so, these global agendas. How, how do you explain the way that... Christianity has largely been co-opted by Zionism, whereas uh, the Islamic world stands almost unanimously opposed to Zionism, except for these Freemasonic uh, infiltrators on the fringes. Well, I think in the case of Pakistan, I think that you, you know, really look at their actions. The creation of the Taliban um, you know, clearly was, um, I think Chuck Hogan described them as a wholly owned subsidiary of Pakistani intelligence. Um, the purpose being to destroy Afghanistan's sovereignty, which was, has been a goal of Pakistan for, well, certainly, you know, in terms of the, 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 um, 
the sensitivity to the Pashtun regions and the amount of, of, of problems that have been created with India where they wanted strategic depth. So you've got all those common issues. But the focus of, of taking the sovereignty away from Afghanistan was almost like the end of the British Empire. That was what they left in place through Pakistan was the possibility to complete that job. You think well, they wanted think to? You. Did they want to break? Keep make sure that India didn't get too big. Was that part of it? No, no. I'm talking about Afghanistan. Right, but but I mean, why, why do they care about that? Why why would anybody in the British Empire really care whether Afghanistan is you know independent, whether the Pashtuns are all together or not? Well, I think that in the case of Afghanistan, you can see that they had, were always an irritant in the side of Pakistan, and the U.S. was always on the side of Pakistan when it came to any issues regarding Afghanistan's needs. And their independence, yeah. I think. The, the Afghan family, you know, the, but there is anti-nationalist. The powers that be are yeah. as anti-nationalist as they are, uh, as they are anti-communist or were anti-communist. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And and the fact is, is that whatever moves their agenda forward, they'll employ. Whoever moves their agenda forward, they'll employ. And I think that yeah, I mean, and, if you look back, and what, what is their agenda? Ultimately, it's a, it's a one-world government, right? Exactly. Control. It's right. a one-world yeah. government. Right. And I think you have to look back a thousand years when you look at the, the Knights Templar versus the Knights Hospitaller. You had two separate groups of, of knighthoods and plus the Germans. The Germans are an, an interesting third third element to this thing that doesn't get really brought up very often. But the fact is is that the main forces here are between the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller. When the Knights Templar the modern incarnation. The, the, yeah, when the Knights Templar who are associated of course with the White Knights and the and the Masonic and the Masons and, yeah. the, Masons and the Masonic rituals. Uh, they were when they were broken up in 1308. Okay, what happened was uh, they had their their wealth, their monasteries, uh, all of the things that made them powerful were broken up and handed over to the to the uh, knights to the hospitalers, who became eventually the Knights of Malta. So, and the Knights of Malta is still a very viable operation. CIA directors are Knights of Malta. Um, the uh, head of the Reinhard Galen, who, who I'm sure you're aware of, was, uh, was brought over from the uh, the Nazis at the end of World War II. He ran the uh, intelligence unit for uh, for the Nazis during World War II in, in Europe, Eastern Europe, and in uh, Russia. Uh, he was brought over, and he he was made a Knight of Malta after the war. So I mean, he was put in charge of the uh, Bundesnachrichtendienst, the the the, the the Federal Republic of Germany's police department. So I mean, you know, you've got a, you have one side has to work with the other on this, and you know, at this late date, I think, um, I mean, if we look at the World Health Organization and we look at some of the mandates that are coming down from all over the world right now, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing a kind of cooperation between one group and the other group. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, it's, Yeah, it's, I think that would be my point to you, Kevin, about um, it really, it, when it gets at that level, the differences in terms of the religious issue really is less important. I think when, I think it was Bill Casey who made the comment about how much more comfortable he was with, with Saudi Wahhabism, okay, than he was with a lot of American ideas. So that's, an, that's the point we're making about they're like-minded in terms of, of the, uh, the idea of, let's say, uh, the, uh, breaking up the nation-state. One of the things that you could say about the pan-Islamist movement that I'm talking about that which, is, which has been connected through the British Empire, okay, 
is that the is uh, it's a matter of each country having its own sovereignty no matter what its religion is and these are these are are people who have been successfully brought into that thinking whether they're christian jewish or muslim that their their thinking is go, like ghani as an example the man that ran afghanistan he was a world bank guy so and and zomay halizad totally against national uh, nationalism for Afghanistan against a sovereign country. He went out of his way to destroy that possibility in 2001. There was a, they had a, a, a lawyer, Jirga. Um, the Afghans had decided they wanted to bring back the king after the invasion by the United States and the, you know, driving the Taliban out. And Zolmay Halizad said, no, you're not getting the king back. So the people's desire to get the king back was nixed and they got a man who ended up obviously in Karzai who ended up uh, you know being very corruptible and Ghani I guess uh, they said I, I saw I think an article about his departure from Afghanistan with with 169 million dollars in cash so you know so this is so this is my point to you it didn't matter that they might be Muslim or not they were not for the Afghan people they were not for uh, Afghan sovereignty, and that's the point. But, and but, but, the but, same... but in the Islamic world, uh, national sovereignty is really not the ideal. I mean, ever since the beginning of Islam, there's been this ideal of the Ummah as the most important uh, social and political mm -hmm. body that every Muslim belongs to. And indeed, mm -hmm. the rationale of Islam from the very beginning was largely to overcome the tribal differences, which tribal or slash national, ethnic, whatever you want to call them, differences, and bring people together in this religious brotherhood that transcended those differences. So from well, my Afghanistan... perspective as a, as a North Africa guy, I think it's tragic that we have all these separate North African countries that have absolutely no reason to exist. Well, Morocco, maybe Morocco has kind of, you know, it stayed out of the Ottoman uh, group for long enough, but really ultimately most of the Muslim countries I look at probably would be much better off in a pan-Islamic confederation. It's, it's not so much. It's about the fact that Afghanistan maintained a moderate form of Islam. They had no suicide bombers. They had no, none of the extremism. They were, it was well documented that they welcomed all religions. They were very generously open-minded. So what's happening now to them, you know, in whatever term you want to use about the pan-Islam, what's happening now is an abomination to the Afghan people, period. And it has nothing to do with Islam. It has to do with the fact that the people who are taking over do not represent the voice of the Afghan people. Historically, if you go back hundreds of years, you can see the kind of thinking that was part of the Afghan nature. Okay, um, as I said, well documented in the 19th century when the British uh, East India Company was infiltrating that area, that they were viewed as very hospitable, open-minded. They welcomed, uh, you know, Christians coming from other places and and were very hospitable. Uh, they they didn't automatically dislike people. So that's what we're talking. Well, about. I think they still don't. I mean, the, the like when Ivan Ridley, for example, was captured by the Taliban, she was so blown away by their hospitality that she ended up converting mm -hmm. to Islam later. So. I, I think this kind of Manichaean, sort of Manichaean line between the the uh, hardline religious types and the more uh, relaxed uh, Sufi religious types is maybe a little bit exaggerated. It's more complex. And I would also add that I think that the, the tribal splits in Afghanistan um, are, along with the imperial attacks and invasions, the biggest problem. 
and something needs to be done to overcome the tribal splits to get people to identify with something bigger. And you say it should be the nation, Afghanistan. No, I say it should be the religion, Islam. Well, that that's up to them. I, I'm not trying to say what they should do, but I will say this though: in terms of the problems with the with the different ethnicities, the U.S. really did contribute terribly to that problem. They went out of their way to avoid the Pashtuns being involved at all, and they put the Tajiks in, and they created an imbalance that they support. That was all Halizad. So, I, again, it's not just an issue of they couldn't get their act together. Is my point. Good, yeah, good point. Well, let, let's jump back to the issue of the, the larger strategy at work in the world now. We have this crazy uh, COVID lockdown everywhere uh, with a, a push for one world um, control of the virus, etc. And uh, it, it occurs to me that uh, the way you've described the, let's say, the Priory of Sion, which is a, a Freemasonic organization, uh, I guess Demarange, the head of French intelligence, was was kind of the leader of that for a long time, and and he was involved in setting up Afghanistan for the tragedy that you describe. Uh, it's interesting that in Dan Brown's uh, first bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, the Prior of Zion is depicted as a kind of anti-puritanical group that sponsors uh, holy orgies. Uh, whereas, <laughs> and, and of course they're pre-Masonic, so they're fighting the Catholic Church, and the, and the Catholics are seen as the Puritans in Dan Brown's world, whereas in your description, the Prior of Zion is part of a sort of a Puritanical uh, international that's tied in with, with Zionism and Freemasonry. Uh, and and I, you know, I'm sort of wondering about how, how your take on things compares with, with Dan Brown and then other people who've looked at the New World Order plans for one world government through Freemasonry and so on. Well, as you, as you said, I mean, uh, the, the connection with all of these things is directing everything towards, you know, the, the Priory of Sion, uh, Sion particularly, towards the uh, preeminence of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, as being the base for the future kingdom, the new world order. And I think that that is ultimately, I mean, look at, read Isaiah. I think if you look at Isaiah and he talks about the world having to bow down on their knees and coming to, to Israel with, the, with all the, the kingdoms of the world having to surrender to the king of Jerusalem. I think that this is, this is kind of what we're dealing with going back a thousand years and, and the, you know, the French uh, connection to, to this, and, and that's the, the First Crusade and the various mythologies that go into this, and the grails somehow get merged into this, and we've been dealing with that recently in terms of what we're writing about for the second book. Um, the fact that the original grail stories uh, came out of Wales in the time period when the Fitzgeralds were first there, in the 11th century and the early 12th century. And uh, you have the Jesse Westons from Ritual to Romance, You've got some very, um, you know, some very significant documentation, and basically what it what it seems from the research of these people back in the early 1920s and 30s was the fact that what they were really doing was they were doing um, the Mithraic rituals. That's what the Grail rituals were really all about. The Mithraic rituals were Persian, they were Afghan, uh, they came from that part of the world, and they were transferred by the Roman army. Uh, as soldiers, it became the Mithraism became the the the, ar- the religion of the of the Roman army, and they took it with them wherever they went. They found you know uh, they found churches to Mithra, temples to Mithra in London. They found them in Wales. They I think they've even found them in Ireland. So you've got this whole deep 
grail idea, and it was applied at one point by British uh, Israel Israelists towards the the whole holy the holy grail. Suddenly, and when it was Christianized, of course, the holy grail became the cup of Jesus. In some cases, it became Mary Magdalene. Uh, she became the grail. Uh, she became the person, and the and this whole lineage of what the uh, I'm sorry, what? The Merovingians. Well, the Merovingians, right. The Merovingians were, you know, they, they were going to be restored, the original uh, royal family of of King David of Israel was going to be restored through the Merovingian family, and that's what's being, that's what's behind the Da Vinci, the da Vinci, Vinci Code. The, the right. da Vinci Code. That's, so yeah, that's, that's a, it. That's, yeah. You have this whole chain of command, okay? But you have the mythology of the troubadours, and who were considered to be, needless to say, heretics, and uh, and crushed uh, by the uh, the Albigensian Crusade from Rome. Uh, Rome certainly saw these people as, as 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 competitors. But then you've got the old Mithraic rituals, which were lodged in these original stories by Bledry and Blaharis in, in Wales that William the Conqueror came across when they for after after the invasion in 1066. So you've got this this story going back. All of these people were involved in various crusades. Uh, the Fitzgeralds were involved in crusades. Uh, uh, Strongbow, the Earl of Pembroke, was involved in crusades. The castles that were being built, the things that they were doing were all kind of uh, connected to this idea of elevating uh, the, 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 the people there themselves, basically, towards, um, towards Mount Sion and taking control of it. Right, but so you can see that the roots of a lot of what we're dealing with today that has been split up amongst, um, you know, the, the, obviously the three religions of Abraham, in many ways all are drawing from pre, it's all pre-Jewish even. So this is, um, you know, pagan basically is what we're really dealing here with. And how that became Christianized or, you know, or obviously worked its way through all three religions in some way. Um, and exist in some as some part of it. I think the Grail um, legends and the Grail quest certainly is very identified. I think as a um, you know they they talk about the fact coming out of the pagan and into the Jewish and then into the Christian. Um, I'm not sure if there's too much Islam in there. I don't know. Islam, is, Islam is, <laughs> it tends to be pretty anti-pagan. Uh, in fact, it, mm -hmm. rather, oh, I'd yeah. say, no, I'd yeah. say that the, means, I'd yeah. say that uh, I certainly think that the, the Jew, the Jewish religion is certainly not pro-pagan. But what we're talking about, I think, is really um, the underlying source that all these religions came out of. All right, and there are there are shades of things within all these religions that come from that source. I mean, That's, post exilic uh, Judaism is very different from pre-exilic. Um, uh, uh, Judaism. You've got a whole different set of values, and, and you have sacrifices and uh, blood sacrifices prior to that, that that changed. You had different kinds of absorption into different cults that were in the Holy Land during that time period. So you have a very complex increasing of events that occurred mm -hmm. from for centuries and for millennia, actually, how, how prior about, to these events. How does this fit into the concept of the war on matter? He described Puritans as kind of hating uh, the world and waging a war on matter. 
uh, which reminds me of those videos of uh, they they build a, an atom smasher, a new big atom smasher in Switzerland, mm-hmm. and they have a big New World Order uh, sort of demonic looking uh, dance ceremony to commemorate it. So, what, explain mm-hmm. how the war on matter and the urge to destroy everything in a big war fits into this. Well, that's that's a fundamental Gnostic idea. The Gnostic idea being that, um, and all of these cults, these various cults were Gnostic cults. Um, they, the very idea of matter itself was that matter had been created by, wasn't God, it had been created by the devil. Well, I have a book to give you a recommendation. If you really want to get an idea, it's called A World Without Women, The Christian Clerical Culture of Western Science. And when you go through the it's basically a 2000 year short history coming up to today and what it does is it shows the evolution of science as really coming out of the christian clerics um the actual i think it was the jesuits that created the first royal society um for science and the purpose of science was to prove the existence of god so this is is the core of the meaning and what this um author did david nobel is he he traced the evolution of science to a point in, in the modern era where he said the natural conclusion of science is actually to replace literally the need for women at all, meaning replace the womb, okay, with an artificial womb. Well, that, that, that's, that's fascinating. Alan Dundas, the famous folklorist from UC Berkeley, has he wrote a, a pretty hilarious uh, and transgressive piece arguing that uh, traditional uh, Christianity is in some ways an all-male reproductive fantasy uh, in which you have the Father, <laughs> the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, instead of the Father, right. the child, and the mother. So you have the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And the word spirit can sometimes uh, mean semen as well. Then he says that the crucifixion scene with Jesus and the two thieves uh, is re- reminiscent of the male genitalia. So for him... Uh-huh. Uh, He's of course coming out of a Jewish background and is probably agnostic. Uh, he was he was arguing that that Christianity has that all male reproduction fantasy going, and that that may have led to the kind of compensation, you know, Jungian uh, compensation, uh, dreamlike image of the exaltation of Mary as the kind of the the female mm-hmm. part that's missing from all of this. Well, this is the reason why, um, you know, I think that underlying, I mean, I don't think that at this point that uh, this is really in terms of where science is going. I think if you want to include like the concept of trans, transhumanism, which is really uh, an attempt to remove the need of human body. Right. So when you really, really see where it's going... Which you, is a profoundly Gnostic idea. Exactly, because there is a sense that some nature really made a mistake. That's the core of the Gnosticism. Uh, Sophia, in the creation of, of basically Ariman, effectively, created, um, was imperfect. And that, that the only thing that's perfect really is your spirit. So that is definitely the underlying principles that we're dealing here with and that's why the you know a world without women you know really shows a historical um kind of an evolution of a history which happens to only be from the christian you know from the beginning of christianity definitely although i'm not saying that may not be history preceding that that wouldn't tie into it but the idea that that the gnosticism really is a a belief that there is something so imperfect with the material world that it needs to be corrected. 
Wow. So, so could uh, COVID uh, be part of a transhumanist agenda uh, designed to uh, overcome the limitations of the material world? Uh, there are people, of course, who are, who are putting out that theory um, uh, on the margins of, of, <laughs> of academic and mainstream discourse. We're not supposed to talk about such things, but it's uh, very interesting speculations about where that might be coming from. There are all kinds of possibilities involved in this, and um, I mean, we we did a we did a screenplay back in well, 30 years ago called Bio Nine, and it was a biological infective organism number nine, and we got it out to Hollywood, and I, we got this really adverse response to it. It was really quite amazing, um, and it was a similar kind of thing to what's happening right now, and uh, it was uh, it was like a prequel <clears throat> to the events that we're witnessing right now, and there was almost an, an orthodoxy uh, opposed to discussing the whole idea of anti-humanism, and, uh, and so I think we're, you know, we're coming up against that more and more, regardless of the facts. The facts don't seem to matter. And uh, we, we discovered that when it came to Afghanistan, the facts didn't matter. And uh, the facts don't seem to matter right now either. So there is a deeper agenda, and that's what we've been, that's what we've been approaching with our, with our work, and it's coming to fruition with, with the valediction. Uh, the valediction is, of course, our last word on the subject, because I don't think there's anything more to be said at this point. Um, we certainly are facing a kind of singularity where the machine and the human being are coming together. And the question is, is that are we going to go there willfully? Are we going to go there, you know, uh, is, is the machine going to continue to be an aid to human existence? Or is, it, or is the machine decided that it doesn't need us around any longer since it's got its own artificial intelligence to, uh, to thrive with? So I think we have big questions, and that's what's so wonderful about what you're doing is bringing those, raising those issues to your audience because these are, these are philosophical issues. They're not even necessarily political they're philosophical, deep philosophical issues that go back thousands of years in human history. And what we want people to know is, is that we are at a crossroads right now and a very important one. Okay. Well, that's a great place to end it because uh, we're, we're at the end of the hour. So thank you so much, uh, Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould. Your book, The Valediction, Three Nights of Desmond, is fascinating on a number of levels, and it's a great read as well. It actually has a, a suspenseful hook. You can't stop reading. You want to find out how an Ambassador Dubbs was assassinated, setting off the uh, first Afghan war. So congratulations on a great book, and look forward to talking again, uh, inshallah. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. It's been great. It's been terrific. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.